Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that tells you the news before it becomes news and gives you insight and analysis on the beautiful game. Well, hello and thank you for joining us today on the Transfer Window Podcast. I'm Johnny McFarlane and with me, as ever, is Duncan Castles. You may be wondering, there's a Scotsman on the line, but his dulcet tones do not match that of Mr. Ian McGarry. That is because he is on a well-earned break. He was highly jealous of Duncan's trip down... uh, Where was it, Duncan? Where did you go? Point allow... Yes, uh, when, when surfing on the Mekong, as you uh, as you explained to our listeners. Yes, absolutely. I, I think I think I was still a little bit hungover, stroke drunk when I was doing these podcasts uh, over the New Year, so I couldn't actually remember what the the banter was. No one noticed the difference of. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. There is little difference. I'll try and keep the duck puns down to a minimum. I mean, I've done a lot of these with Mister McGarry because you do like a holiday, Duncan. But this is the first time we've gone solo together. So I hope you're excited. And it's the only time you'll find Dundee United and Rangers in harmonious unison. <laughs> you're not allowed to mention Rangers in the podcast. That's getting cut. We, we, me and Ian had an executive decision after one of your uh, your uh, festive season episodes. Rangers mentioned far too high in the podcast. So that, that bit's going. <laughs> Oh, I'm, a, I'm a hips fan, Duncan. I don't know where you're getting this from. Anyway, we shall swiftly move on, less reveal anymore, and on to the big story, which continues to be Manchester United. Their defeat on Wednesday night uh, at Old Trafford against Burnley probably is the nadir of their recent seasons, and that is saying something given the depths to which that club has dropped. Duncan, we've seen so much criticism of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I think the big question that needs to be asked and needs to be answered is, why isn't Ed Woodward coming under the same level of pressure? I think that that is a good question and I think if you investigate some of the things going on at Old Trafford on Wednesday night you'll find that he is coming under pressure from the supporters Um, uh, supporters uh, a group of them had a a campaign where they they carried uh, P45s with Ed Woodward's name written on them and, and P45 for our non-UK listeners is what you get from a company when they decide to terminate your employment into the ground on Wednesday night and that was trailed on social media and apparently the stewards at Old Trafford were instructed to remove those pieces of paper from as many fans as possible as they came in which gives you a sense of where Manchester United are as, as a club and, and how they're um, directing um, themselves to try and protect Ed Woodward and I, I think you cannot separate these two elements out at all at present. So you have Solskjaer under justified and severe pressure on course um, for a 54-point Premier League season, the worst in the club's history in the Premier League, the worst for over 30 years in uh, the top division. Um, but it's not just Solskjaer who's the issue here, as we know, as we've talked in the Transfer Podcast for um, basically since the inception of the podcast. I think the issues are with the ownership. The issues are with a, a chief executive who never has run a football club before he was given charge of Manchester United. 
um, scouting department that um, Woodward has invested a lot of the Glazers um, or the club's money in and what they, the Glazers perceive as, as being their own money. Um, problems with the medical department. There are issues from the bottom to the top. And what I'm, I'm hearing is that the Glazers are paying attention now to performance on the field, that they are unhappy for obvious reasons, that they're so far off the pace at the top of the Premier League, that they are at risk of losing their Champions League qualification. In fact, in a normal Premier League season, that opportunity to qualify for the Champions League would probably have gone. It's only because um, Chelsea have lost so many matches because Tottenham and Arsenal are also have been in disarray this season that Manchester United are still within um, reasonable striking range of having a possibility of, uh, of qualifying for the Champions League despite that extremely low points return um, of 34 points from 24 games which is way, way off what they, they achieved in the, the previous two um, full seasons under uh, Jose Mourinho. Um, if you look at Solskjaer, and if Solskjaer is under pressure, the problem Ed Woodward has is this was his appointment and that Ed Woodward has built this cultural reboot strategy around Solskjaer's appointment. So what he has sold um, as the solution for what went wrong under Mourinho, under Van Gaal, under David Moyes is uh, go back to basics, clear out the dressing room, um, reinstall Manchester United style football with X-factor players and exciting um, on the pitch um, play. Uh, we have, he, he's you know, on record, given an extensive interview about the, uh, the, the fantastic scouting system he's put in place, which, which um, uh, reports on hundreds of players when they assess um, who they want to sign as a right back, for example, in the summer and uh, has uh, more scouts employed than any other club in England, um, used a, a, an executive recruitment company to um, appoint many of these scouts. But he, he has, he's built this structure around Solskjaer as an answer to the manifest problems of the club. And now the Glazers are saying, well, we're still not in contention for a, a Champions League place. We're miles off the Premier League. We're not winning games. We're losing far too many games. We've put a huge amount of Manchester United's money into transfers under your reign. So if you look across um, the, all the squads in Europe, you'll see that Manchester United's the cost of um, assembling their current squad in terms of transfer fee commitments is three quarters of a billion euros. And that's forced in the entire world. The only clubs who have a more expensive uh, squad in terms of recruitment costs, Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, Real Madrid. Their wage bill is also one of the four highest in world football. Obviously, that's been exacerbated by the payoffs they had to make to Mourinho and his coaching staff last season. But they are well up there in terms of spending on players. And it's not producing a return anymore. So now the Glazers are asking questions about Woodward's decisions on the pitch um, and in terms of which managers he puts in and what, where they spend the money for players. Previously, the, Woodward had far more autonomy in this area. So I think what you are seeing now with Solskjaer and this question over whether they change the manager, whether they back the manager in the transfer window, 
also broadens out to Ed Woodward because he has a lot invested in Solskjaer because he has built and, and sold this strategy to the Glazers that this is the way forward. Um, we can make ourselves competitive again by following uh, a different recruitment strategy, by using a, a manager who understands the club and, um, and progress will be made. And it's self-evident that progress isn't being made despite what Solskjaer um, is telling us in press conference after press conference and after various defeats and saying um, it's a sign of respect from Manchester City that they put their strongest side out um, to, to defeat us 3-1 in the League Cup tie and that um, only losing 2-0 to Liverpool and keeping it close to the end of the game shows that uh, strides are being made by the team. It's obvious there are big problems here. And I think that the decision-making now that we are seeing at Manchester United is is driven by the Glazers um, wanting to know and not, not wanting to send, in their view, good money after bad. Um, and therefore, you have, obviously, the cardinal um, attempt at a transfer in this window has been Bruno Fernandes. You have the, the talks between uh, Woodward, Matt Judge, um, sporting's president, Federico Verandes, and their, their sports director, Hugo Viana, two weeks ago now. You have an agreement over uh, valuation as a player and then an attempt to structure the deal, which failed because players like Marcus Rojo refused to move to sporting. Then you have um, a straight cash offer for the player and you have Manchester United saying, we will not go above 50 million euros as a, as a basic offer. Um, we've... We can go into the details of that later as to why that's happened and uh, errors that have been made by Bruno Fernandes' representative. But what's in the background to this is that the Glazers have to sign off on this deal, that they're not prepared to allow Ed Woodward to um, sign a player at a certain fee at whatever he determines and deems to be good value. He has to make an argument to the Glazers that this is the correct price to pay and that he is no longer overpaying for a particular player. And therefore, you have it with one week still to go the window, no resolution on that deal. Um, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer waiting to see if he is going to get reinforcements in midfield, where he badly needs them, and a reinforcement in attack where he's managed to lose Marcus Rashford by overplaying him and left himself with just two... Um, you can't even say two experienced forwards, one experienced forward and one very good uh, youngster who's in his first season for Manchester United, Mason Greenwood. Just on that, Duncan, there was a story that came out today that I, I turned to my colleague and said, I think Manchester United are probably trolling their fans now with some of these names, if they are, are correct. And, and the name that really, really stuck for me uh, in that regard was Islam Slomani. Uh, formerly, of course, of Leicester City. Um, is there any truth that, that they are looking at him as a deal? They're looking at alternatives. They have been asking um, for strikers who are available on loan with an option to buy in this transfer market. So they're looking at short-term solutions. Solskjaer's on record as saying, if we have to do something in that fashion, we will do it if we can find the right one. I, my understanding of Slomani is there's been no contact um, with Slomani's representatives and there is no offer for the player. Other one that's been mentioned is uh, 
Odian Igalo, um, is a Nigerian striker currently based in, in China. And I think that falls into the same category of searching around, seeing who you might be able to bring in in this window at short notice. And they're by no means the only club trying to do that. You've got Bournemouth at the bottom end of the division trying to do it. You've got Tottenham um, also competing for a Champions League, desperately trying to find a striker they can get in there. You've got Chelsea trying to find a striker. You have Manchester United failing with their attempt to buy Erling Haaland. Um, you have them inquiring and and monitoring Moussa Dembele at Lyon. But that is the expensive signing. That's the one where you have to put serious money down on the table. Um, Chelsea have made offers there and had them rejected. It would be very amusing if they end up going for Igalo because Igalo was a player that um, Louis van Gaal tried to sign in January 2016 when um, the writing was on the wall for him and he needed something to uh, deliver goals uh, and and achieve Champions League qualification in that season, which uh, ultimately he failed to do. Um, so it would be ironic if four years later, after Igalo has left that kind of purple patch he had at Watford that um, convinced Van Hal to ask Manchester United to go for him um, and ended up in China, uh, that Manchester United were even examining a deal of that type. If the pulse is slightly fading on the Bruno Fernandes deal, Duncan, do they have anything lined up to take its place? There's been reports that they have um, tried and made an offer to enter to take Matthias Ficino, um, their midfielder. Um, I'm told by my contact at Inter that there has been no offer from Manchester United for the player. Um, he's still valued by Antonio Conte. And, and you know, as we've talked about in the podcast in some detail, Conte is trying to pad his squad out. He's trying to add as many bodies as possible and taking them from the Premier League. Um, he has Ashley Young already taken from Manchester United after Young, club captain, forced his way out. He's just taken Victor Moses from Chelsea on a, a loan with an option to buy in the summer. I'm told that option is for around 10 million euros. Um, I'm told he doesn't want to lose Vicino, quite the opposite. Um, I don't think, and my information that I'm getting from the people involved in the deal is that Bruno Fernandes is not off, it's not dead. And, and it fits with the with what has happened because you, we did a story in Daily Record on Monday um, about why Manchester United were only offering 50 million for the player. And that uh, w detailed how when Bruno Fernandes signed a new contract in the summer, he and his agent got an agreement from uh, Sporting that should a written offer, and it's important here, a written offer of 50 million euros be made for the player in this window, then Sporting would have to compensate um, Bruno Fernandes' agent's company and Bruno Fernandes, I'm told, has an interest in that company uh, to the sum of 5 million euros, whether sporting sell or not. Now, talking to people involved in this, they are um, convinced that Miguel Pino, when in conversations with Manchester United about the salary of the player, looking for the personal terms, should they agree a transfer fee with sporting, made it clear to Manchester United that he his understanding was that Sporting would sell for 50 million euros. Therefore, you have United bidding 50 with 10 of difficult to achieve bonuses. You have them last weekend briefing that 50 million is fair valuation and they won't go above it. 
Sporting's position is they cannot sell for 50 million euros. They've told Bruno Fernandes that direct. Um, they are ready to sell for 60 million plus bonuses. There's not a big gap between the two sides. Uh, it looks like brinkmanship from Manchester United. It looks like them trying to be sensible and trying to take advantage of, of Sporting's weaknesses financially and the information they've received about the amount of money they would sell for them. But you, you've seen in this past week since we published that story in the Daily Record, almost all the major Portuguese papers uh, writing another version of that story and confirming that there is a clause in the deal. And I think that is part of a, a strategy um, on Sporting's side to try and make Manchester United aware that they were misinformed on the 15 million and they will need to increase their offer uh, and come towards the figure Sporting are asking for to get that deal through. There's time left. The pressure on Manchester United has certainly increased with the results they've, they've had in January. So I think we're now on seven games in 2020 for this team. They've won two of them, lost four, drawn one. Uh, the only team they've beaten convincingly is Norwich. They're only in the re next round of the FA Cup because of the rule changes to handball, which most people in English football deem ridiculous. Wolves having handball goals ruled off in both of their FA Cup ties against uh, Manchester United and ultimately going out. They have a good chunk of the support in open revolt and all of those pressures coming together, you can understand why Sporting's expectation is that they will eventually offer them a better deal. And, and the information I have from Sporting's side is that the two clubs are still in contact, there's still conversations, they do not feel the deal is dead. And more importantly, they're saying that at no point have Manchester United said to them, we are out of this deal, we're not going to do it anymore. Well, Bruno Fernandes is a very uh, skillful attacking midfield player. And there's another one on the market at the moment, and that's Christian Eriksen, who, of course, only has a few months left on his Spurs deal, um, which will expire in the summer, Duncan. Is there a sense that Spurs are now looking to move this player on and free up some money to invest in other areas? Or is Jose Mourinho determined to keep hold of him and use him until the end of the season? Daniel Levy wants money for Ericsson now if he can get it. And this is very much Daniel Levy's um, strategy in the transfer market for years now. It's sell players when you can get the money for them. Do not let their contracts run down, if at all possible. Um, their asking price initially had been 25 million euros for Christian Ericsson to do the deal now. Just explained that Antonio Conte is putting huge pressure on Inter to bring the player in now him and many other players, and he has said to Inter, this is our opportunity to end Juventus's dominion in, the, in Serie A, um, to win the title in our first season and then and to build off the back of it. So give me players now. Um, there have been negotiations between the club. Inter are signalling that they're confident they'll get the player. They do have an agreement with Christian Eriksen on salary. I'm told that is for seven and a half million euros net um, per season as a basic wage. The interesting element here, I think, is that Inter was not Ericsson's preference. Also an interest in going to Barcelona 
where you have a, a squad which is going to need midfield reinforcement. Um, you've got Ivan Rakitic, who they were ready to sell to Manchester United in the summer, but Rakitic didn't want to leave for United then. You've got um, Arturo Vidal, who has been made available for transfer, but they haven't managed to to get him out yet. So there is a need for them to reinforce the midfield. And Christian Eriksen is a player who would very much fit their style of play and the, the style of play that their new manager, Kiki Setien, wants to implement. I'm not hearing definitively that there's been an offer from Barcelona at this stage, but I think until um, Inter have got that absolutely tied down and they've got a signature on the contract from Ericsson to move in January, there is a possibility that they could lose him to a Spanish club or a better offer from elsewhere. But the, and the player has shown quite clearly that he has the the guts and the, and the resolution to wait it out until the summer if he has to. Um, before making his move, that would complicate things significantly for for Tottenham and for Jose Mourinho. If Eriksson was to say, "Actually, I'm going to wait till the summer, and there will be no transfer fee here," because that transfer fee, which Inter are indicating they're prepared to go to 15 million euros, with Levy's history, you would expect it to go pretty much to the the death of the transfer window and him try to get as as near to 20 million as possible but that money could be sent towards the striker that Mourinho has been asking for since Harry Kane got injured um, we know that Tottenham have been in discussions with a number of clubs about a replacement striker first one Christoph Piantek at Milan um, they tried to get the player on an uh, a loan with an option to buy. Milan don't want to do that. We'll only let the player move. It's a guaranteed sale. Um, they tried for Zé Luis, AFC Porto, problem with the player's passport. Um, so that deal hasn't gone through yet. Now they're looking at William José, um, quite a well-named player for a, for a Jose Mourinho striker. Um, a big Brazilian, uh, very much that kind of reference striker that, that Mourinho has liked to have in his sides or at least have as an option to come off the bench powerful in the air um, scored eight goals in La Liga this season for Sociedad reasonable scoring record last season he pulled out of uh, Sociedad's Copa del Rey match against Espanyol on Wednesday um, ostensibly in a move to force Sociedad's hand um, to, to deal with Tottenham Sociedad are a selling club but they're not the kind of selling club that are enforced sellers they, they sell when they want to. They've got a good um, structure. They recruit well at a young age. They have an advantage in Spanish football of um, the Basque tax laws, which allows them to pay their players at a lower rate of tax than the, the Madrid and, uh, and Barcelona players are, are at least legally entitled to be uh, to be paid. Obviously, both of those clubs had plenty of problems with tax issues in, in recent years. Um, what I'm hearing from that end is they will sell if the money's right for them, but they don't want to be pushed into a deal uh, for a player who they only own 70% of the rights for. Again, what Tottenham are trying to do is get the player on loan with an option to buy. Sociedad do not want to do that. They, If they are going to let the player go, they want a, a, a significant loan fee and they would prefer to have a, a guaranteed purchase price. So... I think there's still room there for Tottenham to go in another direction. Um, as I say, it's a player Mourinho likes, but I don't think it's a it's a in an ideal world. Let's say we went to the summer market 
and uh, Tottenham had time to do this properly and look at players who weren't actually part of uh, a team. And this is another element with Sociedad. They're chasing potential Champions League qualification at present in La Liga and certainly potential Europa League qualification. Let's say they had the chance to go to teams who had the opportunity to rebuild properly uh, when selling the player. Then they you bring in a whole range of other options and I think it's unlikely William Jose would be the top option for Tottenham in those circumstances. Well, one big name striker that is available is Edinson Cavani. Uh, he is, of course, at Paris Saint-Germain where he can't get a game with Mauro Icardi playing so well alongside Kylian Mbappe and Neymar. So it looks like he's on his way, having asked for a transfer from the Paris club. Now, he wants to go to Spain, Duncan, is that right? Yes, his, his father um, has given an interview um, talking about what Cavani wants to do. And he's basically said, um, my son has an agreement with Atletico. There are lots of clubs who are interested. Um, but when you give your word to a team, you respect it. Um, so... Atletico wants him, Cavani wants to go there. Paris Saint-Germain want substantial sum of money to let him go in this window. They're not starting him in games, but they're using him off the bench and they see him as an important player to have in their squad. Don't want to give him away. He's expensive in terms of salary. You're looking at a player who is looking for that big deal, last big deal of his career in Europe. Um, and Atletico are a club who, who pay well. So... Uh, and, and I think also he fits the way Diego Simeone wants to play. So he's been mentioned with a lot of Premier League clubs, but you have the Cavani stance there as to what he wants to do. There's an interesting complication in this in that Atletico don't have much money to play with. They have financial fair play issues. They've been trying to shift players out of their squad in this window to help with their financial fair play structure. They want to do things in the summer. Um, Bruno Fernandes, for example, is a player that they are interested in for the summer. And remember the other factor in Bruno Fernandes is that you have George Mendes, who has the mandate to sell um, Bruno from Sporting, telling Sporting, don't compromise with Manchester United because I will get you the 60 million plus bonuses that you you are setting as your minimum fee in the summer from another club when clubs like Atletico have the ability to buy because they're freed of their, their financial fair play restrictions for the season. Let, what's the complication here? Well, Olympic Lyonnais, um, and you're going to see where this fits into the jigsaw, are trying to sign a midfielder, defensive midfielder from Atletico Paranense called Bruno Guimaraes, 22-year-old, They've made an offer of 25 million euros and 20% uh, of his next transfer to the Brazilian club. Atletico like Bruno Guimaraes as well and want to sign him in the summer. Um, they also hold uh, an option with Atletico Paranense that whenever they receive a formal offer for one of their players, Atletico in Madrid have the option to match that offer. Um, the Lyon president has gone public about com complaining about this, saying it may be a breach of FIFA rules. But the, the difficulty here for Atletico is they have that contractual ability to take a player they want and who they were planning to recruit in the summer. If they do it now, that's going to mess with their FFP issues unless they can move other players out, sell them in the January window to make space on their budget 
to bring that player from Brazil now. Um, then you got Leon. So Leon are trying to to, to buy this player. Leon have, have made two signings in the last week of strikers. Um, Kobe from Villarreal, who they've taken on loan with an option to buy. And then yesterday they signed the uh, Zimbabwean forward from Luav, um, Tino Cadoeri, for 15 million euros, um, although he will not join the club until the summer. So you see there with Leon uh, them building a structure in which they are able to move Moussa Dembele out in the summer and able to meet the players' um, requests or expectation that the summer would be a good time for him to move. Um, and this is the kind of movement you get in the transfer market. So you get the moving parts of various clubs trying to do um, deals competitively at the same time and looking at what they, how they want to set their squad up in the summer that can change things in the last week. Um, and potentially have an effect on the Cavani deal. Potentially, Atletico might say, okay, um, let's try and get Cavani to wait till the summer um, when we, we can get him in then. Uh, and we have to do Bruno now. And, uh, and Leon also have built themselves a structure where if Manchester United or if Chelsea were to come and say, right, we're going to put very serious money down for Moussa Dembele now because we need him now because we have injuries, uh, both of us to our our, um, our our leading scorers for the season and we're both chasing Champions League places, then Olas can make a decision and say, well, I, I don't want to sell this player. I've publicly said I'm not going to sell the player in the window, but I'm getting an offer which is um, above my valuation for him. So it's uh, it, it may be sensible to take that, which of course would have ramifications for Celtic who um, are due a percentage of whatever transfer fee Leon get um, for Dembele when he moves from Leon, which is his strategy, career strategy going forward. Let's have a look at uh, some of the teams that are really, really struggling now, Duncan, in the Premier League. Uh, we know all about Liverpool at the top. I'll just rub that in a little bit for all the listeners. Um, they know that I have a wee sneaking fancy for Liverpool now. 22 out of 23 games won and not lost a single game. Incredible. Uh, but at the bottom, you have teams like Norwich City, Watford, Bournemouth, West Ham, all in the mix, Aston Villa, Brighton struggling a little bit as well. They're all fighting it out. Um, now, in terms of the transfer strategy for a club like this, Duncan, what's the best plan of attack for this window? And is there any clubs that, that, that you're looking at that maybe raises an eyebrow? Yeah, look, it's a very compressed Premier League at present. Um, if you can go as high as Manchester United, Tottenham and Wolves on 34 points and see that they're only 11 points ahead of the relegation zone where Bournemouth are at the top. And there's two teams. You, so you've got Watford and Bournemouth in 23 points and then West Ham just above them and goal difference in 23 points. Aston Villa, Brighton, 25 Newcastle, Burnley, 30, Everton, Crystal Palace, 30. There's, it, this is, it's a situation where there are very few teams secure at present um, and absolutely confident that they're going to be in the Premier League next season. You've got Brighton headed in, in absolutely in the wrong direction after a very promising start under Graham Potter. Um, and, and you're right, you see clubs who are normally very strategic in the market, 
starting to panic and one that I'm aware of who are clearly panicking are Bournemouth. So what I'm hearing is Bournemouth, who are a club who you, it's not hard to work out how they recruit. They're, they're going for predominantly for young English players um, or players who have been brought up at Premier League academies um, and prepared to pay quite substantial fees in the expectation that they can increase their value, uh, get good performances from them on the field by giving them a regular football, increase their value going forward and and be secure in the Premier League as they've been for several seasons. They, they try not to recruit anyone over the age of 24 uh, in normal circumstances. But what I'm being told is Bournemouth are calling around agents at the moment, asking them to come up with ideas for strikers and wingers, also an interest in a left-back um, who can be signed on loan with an option to buy. So you see there a club that's been caught out and you see there a club that, that's trying to solve problems on the hop and, and deviating significantly from their, their normal strategy and doing that. And that's where you get this you know, last week of the January window when um, big mistakes are often made. Would there be a sense that if a club like Bournemouth went down, Duncan, there would be a feeding frenzy amongst certain other Premier League clubs for their players? Does this all of a sudden activate a different type of transfer strategy? Because somebody might say, well, listen, Callum Wilson, they're not going to be able to keep a hold of him anymore. So all of a sudden he becomes top of your list. Well, look, there's certainly significant interest in players like Callum Wilson and Ryan Fraser, who, who had phenomenal assist statistics in the Premier League last season. Fraser's out of contract in the summer. Um, so it looks like he is unlikely to remain at Bournemouth, whatever happens. And he's maybe one that there's a possibility of something happening this week. And, and perhaps that's not unconnected with Bournemouth's search for a winger um, and you know asking agents if they can pro can provide names on loans with option to buy um, and yeah certainly the the surviving Premier League clubs will try and target any club that goes down and see who they can pick off um, Bournemouth you would think would be in a better position than than other certain other clubs if they go down um, in, in that they have good organisation there and and their wage bill isn't at the, the, the crazy scale of things. Th there's another element here, which is it's not just about clubs trying to find players to bring in. It's also about players having to be convinced that clubs are the right one to go to. So all of these clubs, the vast majority of these clubs have, have players they want to move out. We mentioned Marcus Rojo at the, the start of the podcast and, and his role in the, in the Bruno Fernandes deal not being completed. He was the player Sporting wanted um, and he refused to go there because they couldn't um, provide him primarily with the wages. Um, very, very well paid at Manchester United and, and Sporting have no chance of, of matching those wages. Um, he has an offer from Fenerbahce for good money. Um, I'm told his agent would like him to go to Fenerbahce. I'm told Manchester United, unsurprisingly, would be happy to sell to Fenerbahce if they can get a transfer fee for him in this window. But Marcus Rojo wants to go back to Argentina to play for Estudiantes. That's his preference, and he's pushing his agent to be allowed to go there. And obviously, Estudiantes are not going to be able to provide the same kind of cash as Fenerbahce, and they're 
almost certainly not going to be able to provide any cash to Manchester United to do that deal. Another one I'm hearing about is um, Jota, Aston Villa, um, who Aston Villa signed from Birmingham City to with a, a, a quite a degree of controversy in the summer. Um, hasn't played much for Aston Villa. I think uh, four starts in the Premier League and, and very much on the sidelines for him. I'm told that Celtic were interested in taking Jota on loan um, in this window. Um, and you, you would think that would be an attractive move for a player who is out of favour um, at uh, Premier League club. And, and you know, he, he was brought to Aston Villa on the request of the manager. So if he's not getting a game now, he's unlikely to get a game through the rest of the season after the manager's had a chance to use him or to get a regular game. He has the opportunity to go to Celtic into the middle of, of the most interesting title race Scotland's had for years to go and play in the Europa League. Um, campaign second half of the season told he's not interested in going there he feels like it's uh, it's a, too much of a step down to leave Premier League football which he's not actually playing um, to go to Scotland and therefore that deal is not going to happen so, so there, there are complications on both sides here it's not just about finding players that you can get in from a competitor club or from another league for an acceptable fee who will actually do a job for you uh, with all the difficulties of moving clubs mid-season. Um, it's also about convincing players that, uh, that it's, it's the right idea for them to leave and better for their career to, to take a loan move, for even, even a loan move, never mind a, a full transfer. Okay, well, it's time for the quick-fire round now, Donkey. Um, that has been an incredible shift put in by yourself without the interjections of uh, Mr McGarry. I, of course, know absolutely nothing about the international transfer window, so um, I'm trying to give you as much Castle's time as you possibly can <laughs> get, and it certainly seems to be working. I've certainly been fascinated. But now we must move on to a, a segment where perhaps I'll have a little bit more input which is that of the quickfire round. And today we're looking at the big question. Are Liverpool the Premier League's greatest ever team? Duncan, uh, I think probably if you start looking at the potential candidates to challenge them, you're maybe looking at Manchester City from last season, given uh, they won the treble. Perhaps you're looking at the invincibles of Arsenal. Well, certainly you would be Manchester United side of 1999 that uh, won that historic treble where they won the uh, FA Cup, the Premiership, and, of course, the Champions League. What is your take on that big question? And then I'll give you my opinion, which I think probably the listeners can can guess. <laughs> I think it's a question... I can understand why the question is being asked. I think anyone who comes to the conclusion already that this is the greatest Premier League team ever is is uh, kind of jumped the gun because um, although they will win this Premier League, they still haven't won a Premier League. Um, they're on an incredible run of form, an incredible run of results, unprecedented run of results. Um, they have had a, quite a few things go for them to enable that run, but they are miles ahead of a Manchester City team that were uh, putting up unprecedented points totals in the previous season. And, Okay, there, there are reasons why they're miles ahead and the problems at Manchester City are quite obvious. I think if you're going to be regarded as the best ever Premier League team, it's not about invincibility in a season. Um, and it's still very open as to, to whether they achieve that 
or not. It's about sustained success. So I think you you saw Pep Guardiola talking about his Manchester City side um, after he'd won the first title and saying um, the hardest thing is to go back to back and, and to to keep your players focused to win season after season. That as a manager is much harder than winning one title. It's winning two, winning three in a row. And that's what he was targeting this year and has failed at. If you look at those Manchester United sides that you mentioned, the 2009 side won three consecutive Premier League titles. Sir Alex Ferguson also won three consecutive Premier League titles, 98 to 2001. Um, as you say, one of those teams, the latter team, won FA Cup, um, won the uh, Champions League and the Premier League together, and they were also Champions League runners-up um, in uh, a, a joining season. They won the Club World Cup, which Liverpool have obviously added, although that's not the hardest of the of, of these titles to win. And I, I think that's the real target for Liverpool. It's not putting up highest ever points totals because we know that the, the nature of the league has changed uh, in that you know, 10, 15-year uh, period since Manchester United were winning. We know that the, the teams go into campaigns aware that they have to put up record point totals, so they're focused on doing that, and then, therefore the management around them becomes focused on achieving record point totals. And we know that they have bigger financial advantage over the competitors than ever before, not just domestically, um, where the, the, the gap to the other Premier League teams is bigger than it was in that, in that Ferguson-Manchester United era. But internationally, um, Manchester United, uh, Liverpool, Manchester City uh, are up there and in some cases above in terms of the spending on players that Real Madrid and Barcelona are putting in. So Klopp and this Liverpool side are amazing. But you have to factor in that they're working with better resources than any Liverpool side before and working with better resources than that Manchester United side that won three titles in a row and won the Champions League and got to a Champions League uh, final in those three years as well. So I think that's what they need to do. And then then we can have a serious conversation. Is this the, the best Premier League team ever? And that's they look like they're well poised for that. Um, they look like a, you know a, a juggernaut at the moment that that can't be stopped. But it, it's funny how football sends teams off their access quite quickly, and little things can spiral into into large effects um, very rapidly. As we've as we've seen, we have a great example of it with Manchester City this season. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to surprise you, Duncan, and say I, I absolutely agree with you. And in, in fact, and I think Liverpool can only start to be discussed in those terms once they actually lift the trophy, uh, and and then we can look back once we have the season as a whole. I did read somewhere that Liverpool, in terms of expected goals, are massively, massively outperforming where they would normally be. Um, and I think if you look at Manchester City, just a brief cursory look. Uh, um, their goals scored and goals conceded. They've actually scored uh, 11 goals more than Liverpool this season, but they've obviously played an extra game. But you can see those injuries to their central defence has played such a significant part in their demise as a as a challenging force this year. And you have to wonder if they'd had Laporte for the, the whole of the season 
if they would not be giving Liverpool a significantly tougher challenge. And I always think the quality of a team and, and how good they are in, in the, the history uh, and, and, and how that is judged contextually is also always based on the teams that they are challenging against. And if you look at Manchester City last year, obviously incredible numbers they racked up, an incredible side, tactically sophisticated, great to watch, um, some really, really top-class international players. But I think injury in those central defensive areas have decimated them this season. And therefore, it's been something of a cakewalk for Liverpool compared to what it really should have been given the quality that Manchester City have at their disposal. You have all of the traditional contenders struggling this season as well in the other the other big six teams. You've got that surprise challenge from Leicester City, but that, that's tailing off now. I think it, we, we've talked about on the podcast about how expected goals, well, it's an interesting statistic. It's a very problematic statistic, and I'd refer the listeners back to the episodes where, where we, we talked about that in detail. I wouldn't use that so much against Liverpool because of the problems with the statistic. Um, you know, there's an art to winning games uh, without exerting yourself. And Liverpool have won quite a lot of games comfortably the, this season. There's also, when, when you are talking about greatest team of all time, you have to factor in psychological elements and you have to say the mentality of this team is amazing. It's fantastic. Um, their ability to dig results out and, and find ways of scoring goals and convert the chances that are available to them Um is is so so impressive um you know they are a great team um but greatest team ever okay donkey before we go the doc has a quackers curveball for you (laughs) are you ready yeah i'm ready to cut it out if it's a really bad quackers (laughs) curveball No, I noticed earlier on that it's 25 years to the day since Eric Cantona did his infamous Kung Fu kick. Now, being a man of tender years in comparison with your good self, uh, it's not a memory that, uh, that, that, that jumps out uh, for me. I think I was, I was a little younger. I was only 12 or something like that. Um, I do recall the, the fallout, but uh, you would have been in the thick of things when that happened, being that you're in your mid-60s. What are your recollection of that great moment? I, I wasn't even a football journalist at, at, at that time. That was before my, my career started, so I wasn't anywhere near Cantona, and I wasn't even particularly following English football to any great extent at that point. So, um, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm quite as old as you think I am. Right? And I think, I think you're actually, for, for tender years, I think you're actually a, a lot older than, than that trade's description would allow you to, to use that phrase. Were you amidst the monkeys at that point in your life? Uh, yes, I think I was. I think I was. That was just uh, either on my way to um, doing field work in Kenya on baboon behaviour, or actually in the midst of it. Yeah, for anybody wondering what we are talking about, Duncan is indeed not just a graduated doctor on Twitter, but an actual PhD and uh, the the dynamics of behavioural uh, behaviours of uh, primates is that is that an accurate reflection of what you you did, Duncan, or is it wildly off the map? Reconciliation and relationship quality in Cercopithecine primates was the very entertaining title of my PhD thesis. Some would say the perfect training for a life in football. Many people have said that, <laughs> and many people have laughed at the idea as well. 
We'll call it a day there with my terrible, terrible jokes uh, and say that we'll be back on Wednesday with another Transfer Window podcast, which will obviously be your questions answered. So don't forget to get anything you have on your mind down on Twitter and get it sent off to us and we will be delighted to respond on the podcast. If you like the pod, and we know thousands of you do, get onto iTunes and give us a five-star review as this helps us get the podcast as many listeners as possible. Um, you can obviously continue the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, but why would you want to talk to me? You can talk to Mr. Duncan Castles there. He is at Duncan Castles. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.